Good morning. As we continue to worship together through the preaching of God's Word, would you open up in your Bibles with me to Titus chapter 3? Titus chapter 3. And although our sermon this morning will focus on verses 3 through 7, uh, for the sake of context, we're going to read uh, verses 1 through 8. Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Now, for, for those of you that know me a little bit, one of the things that will probably not surprise you at all is that I enjoy reading quotes. And the the particular type of quotes that I, I really enjoy, ironically enough, are the ones that, for those in church history, that have come at the end of their life. Sometimes these are the last recorded words that they've said. And the reason for that is that in, in those words, just sometimes in, in a few words, you have an entire lifetime of searching the scriptures and living the Christian life, packed in to just a very small sentence. And one example of this is John Newton. You may know him as the author of the hymn, Amazing Grace. And when he was 82, shortly before he died, he leaned close to a friend, and, and this is what he said. Although my memory's fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. And for all that Newton had studied in the Scriptures, for all that he had written in terms of hymns or books, all the sermons that he had preached, the foundation of it was the gospel, that he was a great sinner and that Christ was a great Savior. Everything about his life flowed out of that. And Paul makes the same point when he's instructing Titus as a pastor, when he is instructing people in God's word and telling them to obey what God has commanded. Paul is telling Titus, always come back to the gospel. Always bring it back to that truth. And so in these verses, in verses three through seven, let me give you what I think is, is the main idea that Paul is communicating. And it's this. The gospel is the basis for 
and source of good works. The gospel is the basis for and source of good works. And as we think about that, we're going to look at six components of this key phrase um, that he gives in verse 5. He saved us. Six components of that salvation. And many of these points are drawn from the ministry of John Stott. I really like the way that um, he brings this out and identifies these points. The first is the need for salvation and the source of salvation, the object of salvation, the motive of salvation, the means of salvation, and the goal of salvation. And since we're coming in here in uh, chapter 3, let's establish just, just a bit of context for this short letter. Uh, Paul is instructing Titus, who is pastoring in Crete. And so the first thing that he instructs him on is, since you are going to be an elder in this place, this is what you must be in the first part of chapter 1. And then he contrasts that to one of the issues that they were having in Crete with false teachers. This is what you must be in, contra in contradiction to what characterizes these false teachers and what they teach. But then when he gets to chapter 2, in verse 1, he says, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And so he tells Titus, this is what I want you to preach to your people. This is what God has commanded of you and of them. But notice, every time he gives a command, in these first 10 verses, he tells them what the older men should do, what the older women, younger women, younger men. But then he gets to verse 11 and tells them the reason why we're to obey these commands. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And at the beginning of chapter 3, he moves from more individual commands based on age groups and gender to more general commands having to do with how the entire congregation has to live as a citizen. But only two verses later after giving commands, he comes right back again to the gospel and tells them why that they are to uh, be submissive to rules and the rulers and authorities and to be obedient and ready for every good work, to speak evil to no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and show perfect courtesy to all people. So that will bring us to our, our first point in verse 3, the need for salvation. Paul explains that the reason why that they're to live this way is because we ourselves were once foolish and disobedient and led astray. Now, these first three terms, they speak of the disposition of our thoughts, right? what characterizes our thoughts. The one that is foolish is one who is ignorant of God's truth. That ignorance does not make the person irresponsible because he says next that they are disobedient. Right? They're rebellious even against the truth that they know. And not only are they disobedient, they're led astray. Brian Chappell summarizes these words in this way. As a result, the first three terms of Paul communicate that once we possess no wisdom, resisted God's wisdom, and followed others' lies. And as a result of abandoning God's truth, 
Paul then says that we were slaves to various passions and pleasures. And when we come across these words, passions and pleasures, what may come to mind is what Paul has to say elsewhere about sexual immorality. And while certainly that is included here, keep in mind that being enslaved to passions and pleasures is the result of abandoning God's truth. So while that is included, it's every desire and every pleasure that is contrary to God's word. That is what we were enslaved to. And there's a kind of cyclical relationship between these two terms. And Denny Burke puts it like this. When desire is satisfied, we have pleasure. And when pleasure is sought, we have desire. The two feed on one another and creates this a disposition of self-centeredness where we are only concerned with how we can please ourselves and how we can uh, fulfill our own sinful desires. And because we, are, we were self-centered in this way, our disposition towards other people, the way that we act towards others is characterized like this, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. When James addresses you know, fighting in the church, he gives us an illustration of what this would look like. In James chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, he says, What causes quarrels? And what causes fights among you? And he gives us the answer. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Paul tells us that this is who we used to be, and this is why we should be compassionate towards those in the world, is because we used to be in the same position. And what Paul says here in verse 3 sets kind of the background for this main glorious statement that he saved us because it answers the question, saved from what? Now, one of the things that's, that's common in the Apostle Paul's writings is that he'll give these lists of vices that characterize the unregenerate. And we find probably the main one in Romans 1. And at the end of that list, he tells us exactly what the end of our sin is. He says this in Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 29, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And in this list, we find everything that Paul has listed in Titus 3 is here as well. And he goes on to say, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. We have been saved from the death that results from our sin. We have been saved from the condemnation and the judgment of God. But not only have we been saved from the penalty of our sin, Paul explains elsewhere that we have been freed from the power of our sin. We are no longer enslaved to it 
as we once were. He says in Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 17, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. We've been set free from the penalty of sin, the power of sin, and in the eternal life that he will speak of in verse 7, we will one day be free from the very presence of sin. Now notice how he begins in verse 3. He says, for we once were. You see, this list no longer characterizes that of a believer. Now that's not to say that you know, we will not continue to struggle with sin as we still have indwelling sin that we are to mortify on a daily basis. But we should no longer be characterized by these things. So if you're a Christian, let me ask you, are you different? Do you bear the mark of the work of the Holy Spirit in your life? When John Newton was getting older and he can no longer see very well, one of the things that he would do is he would have breakfast with a friend. And afterwards, they would open up the Word of God, and one of them would usually give a, a short devotional. And that day, um, the, the passage happened to be 1 Corinthians 15.10, where Paul says, By the grace of God, I am what I am. And in Newton's probably most well-known sermon, actually, this is what he said in thinking about that passage. I'm not what I ought to be. Ah, how imperfect and deficient. Not what I wish to be. God, who knows my heart, knows I wish to be like him. I'm not what I hope to be, ere long to drop this clay tabernacle, to be like him and see him as he is. Not what I once was, a child of sin and slave of the devil. Though not all these, not what I ought to be, not what I might be, not what I wish or hope to be, and not what I once was, I think I can truly say with the apostle, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Every Christian should be able to say the same thing. By the grace of God, we are what we are. And then in verse 4, Paul brings us to our second point, which is the source of salvation. Because when he makes this statement, he saved us. Well, who is the he? Who is Paul referring to? And if we just look um, a, a little bit before that, when he says it in verse 5, he says, when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared. And you'll notice that as we follow the pronouns through this passage, is that he sets God, our Savior, in distinction from the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ, our Savior. So here we have a reference to the Father. So we have a distinction between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But notice how the word Savior is applied all throughout this, this letter. Paul will refer to the Father as Savior, but he will also refer to the Son by the same title of Savior. And by implication, the Holy Spirit as well. So what is Paul communicating here? He's communicating that we have one Trinitarian Savior. And that one Trinitarian Savior works one 
Trinitarian salvation. And he makes that clear in verses five and six, where he says he saved us, not in isolation from the Holy Spirit, but by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us, not in isolation from Jesus Christ, but through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So what's the significance of this? Why is it not you know, suffice it enough for Paul to say, God saved us, and then move on? What does the doctrine of the Trinity have to do with living the Christian life? And I think John Owen gives us a good answer to that question. Listen to what he says. Now, the sum of the revelation in this matter is that God is one, that this one God is Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. The first intention of the Scripture in this revelation of God toward us, as was said, that we might fear Him, believe, worship, obey Him, and live unto Him as God, that we may do this in due manner and worship the only true God and not adore the false imaginations of our own minds. This is the whole of faith's concernment in this matter as it respects the direct revelation of God made by himself in the scripture. Did you catch that? John Owen makes it clear to us that if we are to, if our responsibility is to the one true God, and it is, to believe him, to worship him, to obey him. In doing so, we must respect how he has revealed himself in his word. <coughs> because to not do so is to worship a God of our own imagination. We must worship him as he is. Paul goes on to tell us what the object of salvation is in verse five, where he says, he saved us. Well, who is this us? Who is he referring to? Well, the obvious answer would be Paul, Titus, to whom he's writing, the congregation to whom Titus will be preaching. But look back in chapter one, where Paul gives his introduction. Notice what he says here. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, this is the key phrase, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. The object of God's salvation are those that he has chosen. And when Paul says, for the sake of the faith of God's elect, he's not saying that we are chosen because we believe as though God somehow looked down through the corridors of time and knew that we would believe and chose us on that basis. But we are chosen so that we would believe. That's the reason that Paul has been appointed as an apostle, so that God's elect through his ministry of the gospel would come to faith. And this is made clear in, in Paul's apostolic ministry as it's recorded in Acts chapter 13. He and Barnabas are at Antioch, and they're preaching. They're preaching about Christ crucified, and people are listening. And as they hear it, they say, well, we want you to come back. We want, you to, we want to hear more about this. These were many Jews and, and Jewish converts. And so as they come back and they, they continue to preach the good news, 
the Jewish leaders begin to become angry at what they're preaching. And so this is what Paul has to say in response to them. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light to the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And hear this. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Not as many as believed were appointed to eternal life, but as many who as were appointed to eternal life believed. God saves his elect. And notice elsewhere when Paul says in verse 3, we ourselves, he tells exactly what the character or the situation of the elect is. When he says the we, well, who is that? Those who were once foolish and disobedient and led astray, slaves to passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. God saves sinners. Now, do you marvel at that? Because I think it's something that maybe we say so often and so perhaps flippantly that we lose the wonder of the reality that God saves sinners. And this was not lost on Paul because he says in Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 7, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to even die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God saves sinners. Again, in verse 4, after Paul has told us what the need for salvation is, who accomplishes that salvation, who is the object of that salvation, he tells us why we are saved. What is the motive of salvation? And in verse 4, he says, the goodness and kindness of God our Savior. Our salvation is motivated by the character of God. The first word he uses here is the word Christates. It means goodness or kindness. It's God's disposition towards those whom he has created. And to get an idea of what the extent of this goodness and kindness is, Luke 6.35 tells us, For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. God is good and kind towards his creation, even when that kindness is abused and taken advantage of. But at this point, let there be a warning. Is the abuse and the neglect of God's kindness is not inconsequential. Romans chapter 2, listen to what Paul says. Do you suppose that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, <coughs> not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment is revealed. 
Now, if you're here this morning and you are not a Christian, recognize that you are the recipient of God's goodness and kindness. The very fact that you awoke this morning is an example of that. The fact that you are in the house of the Lord, that you are hearing the good news of the gospel, that God saves sinners, is God's kindness to you. Do not neglect the salvation that he has revealed in his son and told us about in his word. Repent of your sin. Look to Jesus and be saved. Not only does Paul tell us that God is kind, he has a kind disposition towards his creation. It also says that that God acts on behalf of that creation. And that's captured in that next word, loving kindness. Here's the word philanthropia, which probably sounds familiar because it's where we get our English word philanthropy. So it's not just a disposition, but it's a disposition that moves one to act on behalf of its object. And we get kind of a picture of what that looks like in the one other place in Scripture where this particular word is used. It's when Paul is in Malta. In Acts 28.2, he says, The native people showed us unusual kindness. What is that kindness? For they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because when it had begun to rain, because it had begun to rain and it was cold. God has a kind disposition and he acts on our behalf because he is good in and of himself. That's what motivates him to send his son to die for his people. In verse 4, he says, when the goodness and kindness of God our Savior appeared. So these character traits have appeared. Well, how can that be possible? Well, if you look back in chapter 2 in verse 11, we, we find that same word, appeared. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. Then in verse 13, they were waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of, our, of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So the goodness and kindness of God our Savior appears in the incarnate person of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1.3 tells us that he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. In fact, in speaking with his disciples in John 14, Philip says to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father. And it will be enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, Philip, and you still do not know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So the greatest manifestation of God's goodness and his kindness and his love toward mankind is in the person of Christ. But I think there's a second sense in which uh, the grace of God and, and these glorious character traits have appeared. And it's in not only in the incarnation, but also in our conversion. Because if you look in Titus 2.12, it says, when the grace of God appears, it trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. The incarnation of Christ by itself does not cause this, but it's when the work of the person of Christ is applied to us in our hearts that this results. 
And Paul says that in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We are saved because of what is in God, not because of what is in us. It is God's own character that moves him to save sinners. And if Paul hasn't made this clear yet, he makes an explicit statement that it is not because of works done by us in righteousness. So we are not saved according to our works. We contribute in no way to our salvation. Regarding these works done in righteousness, let's look at what Isaiah has to say about our works. In Isaiah 64, verse 6, he says, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. You see, outside of Christ, we have no righteousness of our own. We have no righteousness. Therefore, our works cannot save us. But Paul tells us we're saved according to mercy. <coughs> and it is the mercy of God that considers us in our sin, in our misery. And we see an example of what it looks like when we recognize God's mercy toward us in a particular parable in Luke 18, where we see a comparison between a Pharisee and a tax collector. And you'll see what the Pharisee has to say when he is relying on his works done in righteousness for his status before God. He says, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Wow. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like that tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. This is a man who has no understanding of the mercy of God, who has such a high view of himself and his own works that he sees no need for mercy. But let's look at the tax collector. The tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes to heaven. And he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me a sinner. This is a man who recognizes that he has no righteousness of his own, and that if he is to be saved from his sin, it will be by the mercy of God and the mercy of God alone. And Jesus tells us in this parable, I tell you, this man went down to the house justified rather than the other. We're saved by the mercy of God. And notice that Paul says it's his own mercy. It is that which comes from within God that is natural to him that moves him to save us, not what is in us. And yet, I would say that it's an immensely popular teaching that the reason that God has sent his son to save us is because there was just something so special about us that God just had to have. There's a man by the name of Todd White. This man is a false teacher. 
He claims to be an apostle. He claims to be a healer. And listen to what he says about the motive of God saving us. The cross isn't the revealing of my sin. It's the revealing of my value. Something underneath that sin must have been of great value for heaven to go bankrupt in order to get me back. In the world, what's paid for something determines the value of that thing. That's what heaven did to purchase me. That must make me of very great value to the Father. That is the kind of foolishness and man-centeredness that Paul talks about of the unregenerate in verse 3. In contrast, listen to what the Apostle Paul has to say as to why God has shown us mercy. In 1 Timothy 1, 16 and 17, he says this, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Listen to this. But I received mercy for this reason. It's going to tell us that in me, the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. God has shown us mercy in order to glorify himself. It is not because of us, rather it is in spite of us that he saves us from our sin to the praise of his glorious grace. And after telling us what the, the motive for salvation is, Paul goes on to tell us, beginning in verse 5, what the means of salvation is. How did God accomplish this great salvation? He says, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And I have to admit, this is the, this is the part of the text that I struggled with the most. What does he mean by the washing of regeneration? and renewal of the Holy Spirit. After reading uh, multiple commentators and multiple pastors, so I think what Paul is doing by these terms is he's calling us back to the words of the Old Testament prophet Ezekiel. Consider those words, washing, regeneration, renewal, Holy Spirit. That should call our minds back to what Ezekiel says in Ezekiel 36. Beginning in verse 25, it says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So everything that Paul says in Titus 3, we have here in Ezekiel 36, cleansing from uncleanness. I will remove your heart. I will give you a new heart, the renewal of the heart. I'll put my spirit within you. And then in the very next chapter, Ezekiel has a particular experience that tells us what this process looks like. He kind of gives us a word picture here. In Ezekiel 37, in the Valley of Dry Bones, what happens is the, the Lord brings Ezekiel in the Spirit into a valley. 
And what he sees is there are bones scattered all around. And he notices that these bones are very dry. And then God asks him somewhat of a rhetorical question. He says, can these bones live? And Ezekiel, acknowledging the sovereignty of God in salvation, he says, Lord, you know. And so God commands Ezekiel, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I'm Lord. And so Ezekiel does this. What do you think happened? exactly what Ezekiel had prophesied. He watches and it says, as I prophesied, there was a sound and behold, a rattling and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked and behold, there were sinews on them and flesh had come upon them and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then, then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy son of man and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me. And the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet as an exceedingly great army. This is a picture of what God has done in our salvation. He has brought us from death to life. He has resurrected us so that we may live for him and know that he is the Lord. Now, what I want you to notice from these, these verses in Ezekiel 36 and Ezekiel 37 is how many times he says the word, I will. Then in Ezekiel 37, do the bones come together on their own? Do tendons start to come together and does flesh cover them and skin cover them and do they breathe on their own? They contribute nothing to that work. They only begin to do so when the word of the Lord is spoken. We contribute nothing to our regeneration. It is a sovereign work of God. And Paul tells us that this Holy Spirit has been poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So Paul tells us that the Father has initiated our salvation. The Spirit has applied it and brought us to spiritual life. But it all comes to us through Jesus Christ. And this is a reality that we remember every time we partake of the Lord's Supper. Remember in Paul's instruction in 1 Corinthians 11, he reminds the Corinthians and us of what was said in the upper room. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, Listen to this. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread... And drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So in Christ's death, in the shedding of his blood, 
what he does is he secures for us all of the blessings of the new covenant. The forgiveness of sins, our repentance, our faith, what Paul talks about here, our regeneration, the renewal of the Holy Spirit, all of it, the entirety of our salvation is secured for us by Christ and comes to us through him and through him alone. And John Calvin reminds us of this reality that none of these things can be true of us apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to what he says. And the first thing to be attended to is that so long as we are without Christ and separated from him, nothing which he suffered and did for the salvation of the human race is of least benefit to us. To communicate to us the blessings which he received from the Father, he must become ours and dwell in us. Salvation comes through Christ and through Christ alone. And the result of this saving work, Paul tells us in verse 7, as he, he reminds us what the goal of this salvation is. Verse 7, he says, so that being justified by his grace. So what Paul is doing in this phrase is he's summarizing everything that he has said so far. It's the work of the Father in initiating our salvation, the work of the Spirit in applying that work by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, and the work of Christ in securing these things for us and being the mediator by which we come to the Father. But since it serves as a summary, why does he use that particular word, justified? What justification is, is our declared righteousness before God. It is a legal term that where God, as judge, declares us to be righteous in his sight, not because of a righteousness that we have, as Paul has made it clear that we don't have any, but being clothed in the righteousness of Christ by faith. And I think the reason he uses that particular phrase, justification by grace, is because it connects verse 3 to verse 7. Because it answers the question, how can a sinner, as described in verse 3, be the heir of the hope of eternal life in verse 7? He must be justified. And Paul tells us in Galatians 2 how that happens. Verse 16 says, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And you'll notice that when Paul says this, we normally associate justification with the doctrine of justification by faith alone. That essential doctrine that sparked the Reformation. But here, Paul says justification by grace. Because what he wants to make clear is that the entirety of our salvation, the whole of it, is due to the grace of God, even the faith by which we are justified. John Bunyan says it like this in his book, Saved by Grace. The things that immediately concern our justification and salvation, they are offered, given to us freely, and we are commanded to receive them by faith. Sinner, hold up thy lap. He giveth his son, his righteousness, his spirit, the kingdom of heaven, repentance, faith, everlasting consolation, and good hope through grace. Our salvation is all of grace. 
And Paul tells us what the result of God's work of grace in our life is that we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So what is it exactly that, that we're inheriting? Well, first, Paul calls it a hope. Now, in Scripture, the, the term hope doesn't carry with it some form of uncertainty, as though Paul has some sort of wishful thinking regarding eternal life, saying that he hopes that he may have eternal life at some point, but he's not sure. Right? Hope is the confident expectation of the reality of eternal life. And the reason for that confidence, we find it back in chapter 1, verse 2, where Paul says, In hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been instructed by the command of God our Savior. The hope of eternal life is grounded in the promise of God. It's rooted in the character of God who does not lie, who cannot lie. If you are a Christian, the hope of eternal life is more sure for you than your very next breath. We have the hope of eternal life. And what is this eternal life that Paul is saying that, that we're going to inherit? Well, in Jesus' high priestly prayer, we're told exactly what that means. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. It is fellowship and communion with the God of the universe. And not only is this a present reality that we have now, as John makes clear that if you believe in the Son, you have eternal life. But Paul also reminds us that it is also a yet future reality. And he captures that in his use of the word regeneration in verse 5. Now that word, it's only used two times in Scripture. Here it's used to describe the conversion of the sinner by the work of the Holy Spirit in bringing them to life and making them a new creature, a new person. But it's also used in Matthew 19, 28. This is what Jesus says there. Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on the 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now you may be asking, where is regeneration here? Well, that term there that's translated in the new world is the same term that's used here in Titus 3. So you could easily read this as, truly I say to you, in the regeneration. So what Paul is, is telling us through that is that what has happened in our lives, in our conversion, this being raised to life spiritually, is just the beginning. Because what has happened to us, God is going to do to the entire creation and usher in an entirely new creation, free from sin, free from the effects of sin, where it is the glory of God all around and nothing else exists. The perfect new creation. G.K. Beale describes this um, in his book, new, uh, new Testament Biblical Theology. He says, regeneration refers to a re-enlivening of a person and is synonymous with bringing a person back to life. 
Again, we find the Spirit is the agent of, re- of the resurrection of the new creation. And as so often elsewhere in Paul's writings, this resurrection begins in this life spiritually and will be consummated in the full physical resurrection life of the age to come. If you're a believer in your conversion, that is just a taste. That is just the beginning of what God has done and is going to do in your life and in the creation as a whole. As we come to verse 8, as Paul is giving more instruction to Timothy after giving him, or Timothy, Titus, after giving him the grounds, in that we find some application of these truths. He says at the beginning of verse 8, the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things. Paul tells Titus, as you're giving these commands, as you're telling these Christians how to live, I want you to insist on these truths of the gospel. Always bring it back to the gospel. As I was thinking about that, I thought about my own life. And you may identify with this as well. As you go throughout your day, you have countless opportunities to obey the Lord to live in obedience to his commands in your thoughts, your words, your actions, and your desires, countless opportunities. How often during the day do you think about the realities of the gospel? How often do you come back to those truths and drink deeply from those truths as your motivation for what you do? Or do you get to the end of your day and you realize I haven't thought about the gospel at all today. When we do this, we're robbing ourselves of the grace that God gives in the gospel to live in accordance to his commands. So what I would encourage you to do following the history of the church, because these verses, four through seven, were likely some form of an early Christian confession. Let me encourage you to commit these verses to memory so that you can call them to mind as you seek to obey the Lord in all things, that you can constantly remind yourself of what God has done for you in Christ and what he continues to do in your life through the work of his Holy Spirit. At the end of verse 8, Paul tells us exactly why we should insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Paul connects the doctrine that he has taught to how we live in light of it. It's what, it is the source of it. It's the basis for how we live. So think about some of the things that Paul has commanded here. Look back in verse two. He talks about how we're to relate to others, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, be gentle, to show perfect courtesy towards all people. I was listening to to Steve Lawson recently where he makes the comment that there are no such thing as difficult commands, right? They're not hard to obey, they're hard to swallow. And I think this would be one of them. And, And that would be just in everyday life. But what about when the conversation moves towards governments, 
vaccines, viruses, the things that are, are sure to raise the heat a little bit. These commands still apply? They do. And so as we interact with other people, especially in these things, it would be easy for us to, to justify our disobedience by saying something along the lines of, but you don't know. Right? You don't know how self-centered they are. You don't know how foolish the things they say are. You don't know how malicious they are, how envious they are. It would be easy to say that. What is Paul reminding us? That's who you used to be. That's who we used to be. And that is who we would be had God not saved us. The only reason that you are in a different position than, the, than this person is because of the sovereign grace of God in your life. And you can apply these realities to every command in Scripture, even though the, the ones that Paul gives here back in chapter 2 where he talks about this is what older men, older women, younger women, younger men, this is what you must be. Look through these 10 verses. What are the areas where you struggle to obey the Lord? Is it in faith, in love, or steadfastness? You struggle to love your spouse or your children? You struggle with self-control or purity? You struggle with integrity? As you consider these questions for yourself, Always remember that it is the gospel that is the basis for and the source of our good works. Let's pray. Father, thank you for having revealed yourself to us. And first and foremost, in your son. But also in your word to us today, God, you have shown us that you are good, that you are kind, and you are loving. That you are merciful and that you are sovereign in our salvation. God, we confess that, that many times we do not think on these truths as we ought to. God, and that is reflected in our lack of obedience to you. God, I pray that your spirit would apply these truths to our mind and to our heart. That we may be careful to devote ourselves to good works and live godly lives in the present age. God, thank you for all that you have done to save us. God, and keep these things at the forefront of our mind, that all that we do may be done for the glory of your name. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.